to the Unpacked Podcast, a podcast devoted to unpacking faith, life, and leadership. The goal to simplify big ideas for greater impact in everyday people like you and me. Well, welcome to episode number 12 of our podcast. My name is Skylar Elmer. I am your host, and I hope that this conversation today will give you the encouragement you need to make a greater impact in your life. Today's conversation is is a game-changing conversation. My guest today is Dr. Mark Moore. Mark is a teaching pastor at Christ Church of the Valley in Arizona, which Outreach Magazine has listed them as the second largest church in America. Mark is also the author of a new book called Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year, which is just a fantastic resource for those who want to understand the Bible better, whether you are new to the Bible or you have read it a thousand times over. This is an invaluable resource to have on your shelf. Mark has earned his PhD on the politics of Jesus which is like the two topics that people try to keep as far away from each other as possible. But Mark has spent a significant amount of his time thinking and researching about the implication Jesus has on the realm of politics. And so I was really excited when he responded to my invitation to interview him on the topic of civil disobedience. But we don't just hang out on this topic. No, we also talk about the pressing issues that are going on today, rioting, and racism, division, political rhetoric, and much more. To me, and you may disagree with me on this, and that's okay, but this is a game-changing conversation. No, more than that, this is a culture-shaping conversation. If you really care about the direction of our country and your world, Christian or non-Christian, this is a conversation that I believe paves the way forward. So enough with this introduction. Let's get to my conversation with Mark Moore. Well, I am absolutely honored to have Dr. Mark Moore on our podcast. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Gallery, thanks for having me, of course. Um, Mark, I think one of the most vivid memories um, that I have was when we were in California and I was I was leading youth ministry. You were one of the speakers at... Um, uh, Christ in youth, and I saw you, and I, yeah. for whatever reason, I, I didn't think you remembered me, and so I walked up, you said hi, and I and I asked you, I said, do you remember who I am? And you said, of course, you're Skylar Thomas Elmer, <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I felt so ashamed, and uh, so anyways, Mark, I had you in Acts class, and um, that was probably one of the most shaping experiences that that I had um, early on at Ozark Christian College. So um, it's it's an honor to have you. And um, uh, so I guess before we kind of begin, I think most of the people listening to this will know who you are, but um, can you just do a little bit of an introduction to yourself, you know, um, yeah. your spiritual journey, academic, and even leadership journey. You're at Christ Church of the Valley. Um, how in the world did you get there and all of that? Yeah, well, uh, I grew up actually in Sacramento, California, a small Christian church. We ran probably 120, uh, but I felt a call of God on my life to preach. And it was our pastor's daughter. Well, of course, we didn't call them pastors back then, just preachers, uh, which was a weird thing. But she said, if you want to preach, you should go to Ozark Christian College. Well, I'd never heard of it, but I had an opportunity to drive someone else's car to Kansas, leave the car there and fly back. Dude, senior <laughs> high school, road trip, I'm uh, skip a week of school, all in. So the minute 
and this is weird, but the minute the tires hit the pavement going up that long drive to Ozark Christian College, the Lord just said to me, welcome home. Mm. I thought he meant for the, the four or five years I was going to be a student there. But after I graduated four years later, I come back on staff and I spent another 22 years teaching New Testament at Ozark Christian College. And and I'll just, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly, Skylar, but people have asked me, why did you leave Ozark? Because I had a pretty good gig. I taught my classes so many times, I could literally walk into class and teach without any preparation. So, but here's the real reason. The faculty was now being dominated by my former students. They were better than me, but they didn't know it yet. So I thought, if I leave now, they'll still think that I was something special. So uh, <laughs> I got an opportunity to um, to come to the church. And I really wasn't running from, I was running to. I'd had other job offers here and there, but never a church. And I know there are a number of churches out there that are really like this, but never a church that actually prioritized outsiders over insiders. Mm. And so to, as an example, when I come off stage from preaching, I'm the teaching pastor, so I, I preach 14, 15 times a year. When I come off stage, I, I tell, we're one of those ridiculously large churches and we have to have security. It's, um, I mean, it's, it is what it is. But I tell the security guy, your job is not to take a bullet for me. Your job is to get me past Christians that want to monopolize my time. Because wow. my heart is to race to the first time guest tables to meet first time guests non-Christians, unbelievers, and really prioritize them. And I I remember I'd been on staff for probably a month or two, and I preached a sermon. Somebody got their feelings hurt, which at our numbers, somebody always gets their feelings hurt. So you just, you know, you kind of roll with it. But they they wrote an email to me and the senior pastor saying, we're leaving the church because of you. And the Mm -hmm. senior pastor came into my office. I thought, oh, great. You know, it's been a good two-month run. (laughs) <laughs> he comes to my office, lays the email. He printed out the email, laid it down on my on my desk, and looked at me and said, "Good job," and just walked out. Because what he was saying is, you cannot let those who fund the church determine the direction of the church, and that is a hard, hard sell. But we stuck to because of him, Don Wilson, founding pastor. We've stuck to that line. And that's made us a church. Um, I know this is a way longer introduction than you wanted, but I, I got to tell you one more story. A guy came up to me, a big old barrel chested dude and bald head and so gorgeous, obviously. But he goes, you got to talk me into God. I said, yeah, no, I don't. If, if God wants, you know, I mean, God can talk himself into you. And he goes, no, you got to talk me into God. Dude, why, why do I need to talk you into God? Because I'm an atheist. Okay, so he goes, yeah, I want to keep coming to CCB. I said, dude, you can keep coming to CCB if you're an atheist. And he goes, no, no, you understand. I've invited five of my neighbors to come to CCB with me. They've all gotten baptized. I feel like a hypocrite. You need to talk me into God. (laughs) I thought, man, when an atheist is trying to figure out how we can believe in God so that he can come to your church, you have actually reached the non-believer. So it was a really cool moment for me. Anyway, that's that's why I'm here. Man, that's cool. Uh, well, Mark, I, I know personally as a student, I have really appreciated that. And it's really exciting to see you. Um, 
I guess you were in the front lines at Ozark, but it, you're, I, I don't know if this is bad to say, I mean wrong or anything, but you were very much in the trenches, you know, of ministry and just get, preaching, getting the word out, ministering. So it's awesome. Awesome. No, you're, you're exactly right. This, this is the front lines. And I, I was well aware at Ozark, I was, I was a guest speaker. But that's different than being people's pastor. So, uh, for example, this coming Monday, we, we just arranged this. There's a, there's a woman with a special needs child. We have a great special needs ministry. She has two children, a teenage boy and then a special needs girl. Like often happens with special needs families, her marriage broke up because mm-hmm. her husband couldn't take the, the pressure. So now she's a single mom going through covid with a special needs child. Wow. She also volunteers in our nursery to hold babies. So a separate couple uh, called me and said, hey, we got this federal refund check. We don't really need it. Like we're retired, this is stupid. Do you have anybody that we could give this money to? And so we have arranged, this is so cool, I can't wait for it to happen. We have arranged for this volunteer to show up on Monday to have her story recorded. She thinks she's having her story recorded for how she volunteers and uh, mother of her special needs still is serving the church, which is totally cool. In the middle of the interview, this older couple is going to come in with a check for $1,500 for her. And we're going to capture it all on film. And if she's willing, we can share her story publicly. But it was that that kind of frontline ministry. You just don't get it, Ozark. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's awesome. How cool. How cool. Yeah, um, yeah, I can't wait. Well, Mark, you're not just a pastor. Um, you all also have done um, your doctoral studies. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, at the University of Wales. Yeah, that's um, right. And it was on the politics of Jesus. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, there's, there's two things that you don't talk about in polite company religion and politics. Yeah. So I thought, let me just combine both of them and get everyone to hate me. That would be, that would be a good idea. That's awesome. So what was like, uh, what was your, I guess, focus in that? I know your dissertations are um, ginormously long, but um, yeah. what was, I guess, your thesis? Like, where were you going with that? Well, this, it really is not that complicated. Here's where I was going with it. Jesus said, James and John asked him for chief seats, right? And Jesus said, that you got, you have to lead in a different way than the world leads. The world forces power and self-promotion. But if you want to be a leader in the kingdom, uh, you, you should give of yourself and serve others for even the son of man did not come to serve, but to, or to be served, but to serve. What we often miss is people think Jesus saying, Oh, don't, don't be a leader. Don't be aggressive. Don't, don't seek for greatness. Jesus never rebuked James and John for seeking chief seats. Mm. He told he actually told them how to get them. So from that passage, I thought Jesus has, he's not a politician in your classic sense, but he did preach on the kingdom of God. He did walk down the Mount of Olives on a donkey in a triumphal entry. He did cleanse the temple. Uh, he did, he did claim to be the Messiah all of those are clear political actions without claiming verbally to be a king. And I want to figure out why. What was he up to? Was Jesus political? And my answer is, yes, absolutely he was political. 
The reason he doesn't strike us as political is because he refused the only political methodology that our world knows mm. of self-promotion and self-protection. Instead, Jesus only used power for the powerless. And my suggestion at the end of the dissertation is, if our public politicians, forget if they're Christians or not, if our public politicians would do that, they would be far more effective leaders mm. because Jesus' political methodology doesn't just work in Christianity. It simply works in Fortune 500 companies, in political entities, in education systems. And if you want to test it, I, I'm just going to throw out three names. One of them may not be familiar. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Vaclav Havel, the first democratically elected president of the Czech Republic. All of them, although Mother Teresa was, was clearly um, a, a Christ follower, and so was Martin Luther King Jr., of course. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi is another name you could throw out there. He, he's a, he was a, a Muslim, uh, and, and, or, or a Hindu, I'm sorry. And so he, he didn't have necessarily any um, Christian commitment to Christ as Lord. And yet all of them, adopting Jesus' methodology, were immensely effective figures in changing society where they lived. Man. So that was the dissertation. Yeah, so, man, that's good. And, you know, just kind of reflecting on the, on the New Testament, there's, there's all kinds of things, right? Um, you know, Jesus going to the cross, uh, it was, uh, the, the claim was that he was being crucified because he was claiming to be king, right? And there's only room for one, uh, one Caesar on the throne, and it wasn't Jesus. And so, you know, that's that was the the uh, the lock-in argument the Jews used um, against Pilate to to get him crucified. I mean, loaded loaded politically, yeah. you know, um, loaded politically. So, okay, Mark, how do you how do you respond? Because I know there's a lot of people you had mentioned at the beginning that if you two subjects you should not talk about, right? Religion and politics. And you said, I'm going to focus my research on that. So I, I imagine that you have people every once in a while who kind of buy into this idea that Jesus is just for, I guess, the spiritual matters, and then politics are for the uh, the secular, um, I, uh, secular topics. Um, like, how do you, how do you respond to somebody who comes to you and just is just purely just thinking that Jesus is only focused on political stuff. Oh, you mean? I mean, not, I mean, not political, stuff. Yeah. spiritual stuff. Sorry. Um, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and it would it would depend on where they are in their journey. You know, everyone has their own uh, motives, and sometimes you understand what their agenda is. Sometimes you don't. Typically, though, what I would say is, well, let's just let's just say it's a non-Christian who's saying Christianity has, has no bearing in politics. Now, I would probably say to them, um, well, what do you think about social justice? Because if you're, if you're interested in social justice, as soon as you say the word social, that leads to society. How do you change society? It is through the polis. Politics actually goes back to the Greek word polis, which means citizens. Mm. And citizens always have a responsibility. And so I, if it was a non-Christian, I would probably go that route of, hey, if we want to do things that are actually compassionate for people, your best bet 
even if you, if you, if you don't believe Jesus is God's son, your best bet is to follow Jesus methodology of loving your enemy. You know, take, take the discussion right now uh, of race that we're having. We've got two sides, both inflamed. Uh, one side is saying, quit calling me racist. I'm not a racist. The other side is saying, well, quit, uh, quit uh, uh, oppressing us because we're oppressed. What if both sides began to love their enemies and say, mm. what are your concerns and how can I minimize your concerns? If, if white people look to black people and said, we don't understand what you've experienced. How can we be more aware and sensitive to that? Or in a black people said, hey, it appears that white people are afraid of black people. What are we doing that are, it, it seems to be intimidating or frightening? And, and you could object, like some people hearing this are going to object and say, yeah, but you don't understand. No, I understand perfectly. And what I understand is that diversity divides, period. Mm. And if you're going to focus on the differences of people, you are going to continue to divide. And you cannot show me a single contrary example to that. I will tell you where there is no racism in our world, secular no racism on a football field during a championship game. Mm. If I'm a, I could be a neo-Nazi and if I'm the quarterback and my best receiver happens to be black, brown, blue, or yellow, and he's in the end zone, I'm throwing him the ball. Why? Because I'm committed to something bigger than myself or on the battlefield. I don't care what color you are. I care what color your uniform is. And if you're shooting in the same direction I am, you are my brother. There is no racism in the end zone of a championship and on the battlefield when you're, when you're being attacked by the enemy. The reason that Jesus is critical for this racial discussion is because he is the only thing large enough that is above all of us that can unite us together. Mm. Naturally, we are not going to be united, mm. period. If, however, going back to your question, how do you deal with this with people who say Jesus is a political? If the person is a Christian, then I would say the reason you think Jesus is political is not because, is not because politically Jesus is going to somehow distract us. It's that you don't see him as political enough. You only are thinking about him as a, as a mayor or a governor, maybe a president. No, he is king of kings. And when you put him on that throne, then suddenly there's no problem with giving allegiance to Jesus. Again, the problem with, with talking about Jesus politically is we only consider him at a lower level politics, like a president or a czar mm. or an emperor. And if you are devoted to Jesus as president, that means you have to take, you're going to have to be against some other nation. If you see him as Republican, then you have to be against Democrats or vice versa. And so the, I know that politics right now is in this very divided state. But again, it's because we're thinking too low about politics of Jesus, not high enough about him being above all of our political alliances and affiliations. We're in, we're in the midst of some terrible tribalism, and only Jesus can break that uh, when every tongue, tribe, and nation stands before the throne. Yeah, man. 
That is so powerful, and I hope that um, I hope that uh, really is something um, everybody listening to this is wrestling with. You know, as we kind of um, make our way through these obscure, tense times. Um, well, Mark, uh, thinking of you know, I guess. Uh, the, the topic at hand, you know, when you talk about politics and Jesus, the Bible, Christianity, um, you think about all of that. Um, there's a few instances where this topic of civil disobedience kind of rises to the surface. As a church, we're, yep. we're working our way through the book of Daniel, and that's like, there's several instances of civil disobedience there. And so kind of just jumping into that, can you give us like a 30,000-foot view of civil disobedience? Like, what does the Bible actually have to say about it? Absolutely. And that's, it's actually a pretty clear answer, surprisingly. I was talking to one of our congregational members uh, about this exactly this week. They were asking about masks, and I'm not going to wear a mask because you're impeding my civil rights. Really? Because you're wearing pants right now. Is that <laughs> impeding? Like, it's, it's, <laughs> pants, are, uh, pants happen to be mandated as well. So it's just a different article of clothing. Um, or, or we might think about is... Um, Years ago, you could go into a restaurant and smoke all you want. And the smoker mm -hmm. said, you can't tell me not to smoke. And we go, actually, we can because you're creating unhealth for those around you. And so that was the topic. And again, I, I know that I've alienated a lot of people because they're going, I'm not wearing a mask. Okay, you do you. But civil <laughs> disobedience is there is a clear uh, biblical precedent. Three times people refuse to obey the government in the Bible and were praised for it in the Bible. Number one, when Pharaoh told all the Jews in Egypt to kill their babies, the Jews go, yeah, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. When Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel to bow down to his statue and, and pray to the statue, he said, yeah, no, I, I'm not going to do that. And when Peter and John were told by the uh, Sanhedrin members, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus, they said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Hmm. If you look at those three incidents, here's the clear conclusion. If God tells you to do something and the government says, don't do it, you disobey the government. Hmm. If God tells you to not do something and the government tells you to do that thing, you ignore the government. But until you have a clear scriptural command of God to do something or not do something, and the government contradicts what God has commanded, you do not have the right to disobey the governing authorities above you. Wow. And if you don't believe that, then God help your marriage. <laughs> right? Because God gave some clear commands. And you cannot be in obedience to God if you're not in obedience to the authorities above you. Hmm. So, Mark, um, practically speaking, where's the where's the line in the sand? Like, what what would be, I guess, some examples of when we when it's, I guess, permitted to say no to Caesar, right? Or, and yes to Jesus, or, you know, however, how, however you put, you know, categorize that, that governing leader, like when, is there a line in the sand? Is it, is it ambiguous? You gray? Is there kind of some guides? Uh, well, here's, here's what's interesting, Skylar, is in the nation we now live in, in fact, this is true of 
every modern nation that advocates for civil rights. Let me say that clearly again. Every modern nation that advocates for civil rights is actually based upon, the legal system is based upon the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And, and I hope this isn't too much of a sidebar, but if you really want to look at the impact Christianity has had on the Western world, there's a book called How the West Won by Rodney Stark. Okay. And it's such an important resource, How the West Won by Rodney Stark. He traces everything from education to medicine to politics to prison system to missionary efforts. And I'm just telling you right now, if anyone is critical of the church, like, well, the church is imperialistic and the missionaries went and they destroyed other cultures, you are ignorant. I'm sorry. If you if you say that, you may point to one or two examples of a missionary that did that, but to say missions did that is wholeheartedly ignorant. Mm-hmm. To say that, for example, the church is racist, that's just ignorant. It is just ignorant. Martin Luther King Jr., who led civil rights, he came out of the church. And the whites in the 50s, 60s who marched were Christians, by and large, were Christians. If you look at those who are eradicating poverty around the world, particularly in the sex slave trade, they are Christians. If you look at the, at, the, at the medicine that's being distributed, particularly in Africa, for AIDS relief, it's Christians, not pagans, not Muslims, not Jews. It's Christians mm. who are committed to these kinds of um, uh, acts of freedom. And, and it, again, education, science, medicine, you look at any major arena of our world, And the foundation of modern progress and civil rights is because of the principles of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, and the reason I said that is, if you're asking about civil disobedience in the United States, what law is contrary to the the biblical mandates of God? We do have freedoms to, to preach Christ. We do have freedoms to pray. I mean, when I was in high school, years ago, they were removing prayer from high schools. But they weren't, they weren't saying that I couldn't pray. Man, we still prayed around the flagpole. I still prayed at lunch. Nobody stopped me. What they're saying is that the school can't sponsor a prayer. And honestly, I don't know that's a bad idea, especially as you look at how liberal our schools have become. You may actually have a Wiccan praying. Mm-hmm. rather than a Christian praying. And I don't want that mandated on my kids. So what I would say, again, again, the politics of Christianity is above our civil government. So you can, I, for a Christian to say, no, the schools need to pray, you're asking a civil authority below Jesus Christ to carry out the mandate of Jesus Christ. Why would you do that? I'm committed to Jesus not committed to some lesser government. So in answer to your simple question, I cannot, and I probably, if I thought about it, I could come up with something. I cannot think of a mandate of God that is contradicted by a specific law of the United States. Maybe something in the, in the abortion rights um, stuff, because thou shalt not kill is, you know, kind of a big deal. 
<laughs> but nobody's forcing me. Nobody's forcing me to kill. They're allowing someone else to do it. Yeah, you know, and man, the other day I was, what was I saying? I was, I was, it was in a sermon. I was just kind of saying I, I was looking at Brother Yun and some of the things that he had to, he suffered through in China. And you, you think about the persecuted church, right? I mean, literally, like they get their Bibles um, confiscated and sometimes burned. Uh, you get thrown in prison. You're told. Uh, don't preach Christ. Uh, don't, don't. You are not allowed legally. You are not allowed to be a Christian in this country, or you're not allowed. You, you're not allowed to ga- uh, uh, gather together as a church unless it's you know the the um, governing um, uh, branch of the, of the church or, or whatever it may be. And as you look at the circumstances we we're going through in the states, and it's like, man, we just sound so wimpy when we start complaining yeah. about all these things. You know, when you look at uh, the actual um, uh, heavy hand that has come down on our on the Christian faith and, and the church. And so, anyways, I mean, yeah. Well, let me let me throw in on that, Skyler, because I had a, a, a an incredible opportunity two years ago. I was in China on a mission trip, and we had dinner with Chairman Xiao. Chairman Xiao reports directly to the Prime um, Minister of China. Wow. His role is to rebuild the ancient Silk Road. It's going to be by air, land, and sea. Huge deal. So we're sitting around this table, uh, wonderful food, about half Chinese, about half Americans, 15-15. And I can't, I'll just admit it. I knew that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. I totally monopolized the time with Chairman Xiao. And he and I just had this 30 minute conversation and it was about the persecuted church. Wow. And I asked him, how many Christians are in China right now? Like about 15 million. And he goes, oh no, it's way higher than that. He's a Buddhist and a devout Buddhist. And he said, you Christians, he said in 50 years, China, will either be Muslim or Christian. Hmm. And he said, I hope it's Christian. And the reason he allowed Christians in is because he understands that Buddhist principles will not sustain the economic growth needed for the Silk Road to be rebuilt. Hmm. You have to have ethics to do good business. And so this was all super fascinating to me. And then he looked at me and he said, you Christians made a major mistake when you first came to China. And I am all ears. He said, you went and preached in the villages because the villages wouldn't persecute you. You should have gone to the cities and gotten persecuted on purpose because China has never been conquered by a foreign nation. Never. It's always been an internal rebellion that conquered the nation. And where did those internal rebellions come from? The villages. So you went to the very place that would make the government most suspicious about you. Had you come in, taken your lumps, China probably would be Christian today. And I thought, wow. And that does speak to your question about subversive Christianity that I'm not going to do what the government says because I'm free. Man, even Paul said, Romans 13, we submit to governing authorities. God put them there. And I think about Caiaphas, who was the one who said Jesus must die. This is John chapter 11. 
And then John, who's documenting this, makes an interesting sidebar comment. Caiaphas prophesied, mm-hmm. one man must die for the nation. Caiaphas prophesied, but he didn't even know he prophesied. How can you prophesy if you're not a godly man? This is really important. You don't have to be a godly man to be God's man. Mm-hmm. And the government that is over you is allowed by your God. And even if you don't believe that our leaders are godly, they are still God's men and deserving of our respect and obedience. Man. Wow. So that's a lot to chew on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess, Mark, uh, help us kind of um, think through this, you know, as Christians, as a church, like, is there? Do you have any kind of words of wisdom um, about how we should begin? I guess sorting out um, the the right decisions, the right um, uh, the right I don't know the the right way to think about these issues, kind of as they relate to today and what we kind of wrestle it wrestle with. Like, yeah, uh, when should we draw a line in the sand? Well, um, let me let me shift the question because. What's happening right now, particularly on social media, you've got this social media platform that is worldwide, and we want a gigantic platform and make a minuscule contribution. That's wrong-headed, because all we're doing is increasing the volume and the confusion in the voices. Change does not happen at the governmental level. It just doesn't. Maybe it used to, our government for the last at least 30 years has been reflective, not directive of culture. Let me say that again. Our government has been reflective, not directive of culture. In the discussion, going back to James and John asking, rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And they, they, uh, the, the people who, the, the rulers of the Gentiles who are perceived as leaders, that's the way it's translated, they are perceived In the Greek, it's not a passive, it's an active. So it's not the people who perceive leaders as leaders. It's leaders who are giving the impression that they are leaders. Well, they do have power, and we recognize the power that they have. What are they using their power for? Self-protection and self-promotion. Biblical leadership is not giving the impression that you're a leader, but it's leading by serving. So circling back around. We're trying as Christians to make our voice known. Stop it. Just stop it. You're not going to make a difference on a large platform of social media or even at a national governmental level. Here's how you make a difference. One-on-one, face-to-face, in relationship. When when the rioting and looting started because of uh, George Floyd's murder, and I'll, I'll just say it straight up what it was, whether it was manslaughter or murder, when George Floyd was killed, rioting and looting started. Phoenix is a major metropolitan area. We had it as well. We had a, a lockdown order, a curfew order. It was a Sunday night. And while the order is being given by our governor, I was meeting a friend of mine up at the church, and we were taking a a benevolent gift to a white pastor that this man had met. My friend had never met this pastor. 
I get out of the car and I go, dude, I'm, I'm sick to my stomach. I am, I'm distraught because I want to do something to solve the national problem. I, I could do nothing. But this friend of mine, we were getting together to do one act of benevolence for a family that needed help. She had lost her job because of COVID. The friend of mine happened to be a black man. And he was, man, I, I, I need it too. So a black man was giving a gift to a white pastor that he had never met at the same time that all the riots were taking place. You know what? The rioting and the looting is only creating more tension. The rhetoric, uh, protect, you know, this whole Black Lives Matter, no All Lives Matter, whatever side of the fence you're on, that rhetoric is only raising tensions. I'll tell you what releases tensions is when a white man like myself and a black friend go to another person who needs help and we just do good. If I could just speak straight into your audience heart right now, I would say stop trying to win an argument. Just do good. You, you have a circle around you that's about 36 inches. That's what you control. Be great in your 36 inches and let the rest of it sort itself out. Wow. Um, Mark, that is so good. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Um, that, uh, that is a message that, you know, um, that, man, more people need to hear, more people need to embody that. Um, the the Jesus centered ethic, you know, that we see reflected in New Testament, and that transforms countries and nations and and uh, people's lives. And so, uh, Mark, I just um, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, thank you for taking the time. I thank you for your investment in a student like me at Ozark, and then your investment in Arizona. Uh, in the ministry that God is doing through uh, Christ Church of the Valley. Um, it's an honor to have you on, on the podcast. It's an honor to, um, uh, to have you speak into this topic. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Skyler. And you are a good investment. I'm proud of you. Stop trying to win an argument. Just do good. Uh, be great in your 36 inches and let everything else sort itself out. Is that not great words of wisdom? We cannot control, we cannot influence or change anything uh, but what is right in front of us. More than that, if you truly care for the place you live and you want to see our world move in a positive and loving direction, then spend more time investing in those 36 inches than expressing your opinion on the interweb. Next week, back on our podcast is Shane Wood, but this time we are talking about like end times stuff, and so, or so it often kind of gets interpreted, but next week, Shane is breaking down the literature in the Bible that that makes many people so uncomfortable that they would rather never read it. Uh, We are talking about apocalyptic literature, which in case you are not aware, is a literature that is found in scripture but no longer exists in the world today. And it is highlighted in two key books in the Bible, the book of Daniel and Revelation. Uh, Shane has earned his PhD under the leading Bible scholars in the world today on Revelation. And he has spent a significant amount of time helping train people to become better readers in a, of, of scripture, of the scriptures that most people either run from or distort. 
Well, I hope this conversation has helped you in your life so that you can make a greater impact with your life. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week as we talk about apocalyptic literature.